word to us this morning. Well, good morning. My name is Robert Lotzer. Uh, I uh, am married to Tracy. She's over here. I've got three uh, beautiful children. They're adults now, uh, 19, 24, and 27. Okay, they're close. I, uh, I had to ask her this morning on the way to church because I don't ever remember their days. Uh, I serve in Abilene. I serve Jesus as a, as a nurse. Uh, in Abilene, and uh, Tracy serves uh, at the hospital as a barista. She makes coffee for a living, so um, we, uh, we enjoy uh, Abilene. I tell you, I've never heard uh, the song, Jesus is Mine. One of the things I love about traveling to other churches is that we get to share with one another, and I think I'll take that hymn back home and encourage our church to pick it up. It's absolutely beautiful. Well, uh, I'm going to be working my way through a passage from Hebrews uh, chapter 7, but in preparation for that, I'd like us to turn to Psalm 110, read the whole uh, psalm, and then turn to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, and read through the end of that chapter. And in honor of God's Word, let us stand in His presence as we read His holy and inerrant Word. Beloved, this is the word of the true and living God. Hebrews, or Psalm 110. This is a psalm of David. The Lord, Yahweh is his name, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, fitting them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with the tribe of Moses, said nothing about priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. 
But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. May our Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you are a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In your being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. You have revealed yourself to us that we might have the joy of reading your holy word, of memorizing, of meditating, that it might sustain us and keep us and teach us who you are. Father, let us be students at the feet of Christ this morning. Let us learn from him in your holy word that we might know you, obey you, love you, and serve you. For it is in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This morning, I'm actually starting halfway through a sermon that is being preached by the preacher to these former Jews who are now following Jesus as Messiah. In case you haven't read for a while Hebrews 7, I'll do my best to try to catch us up with the first half, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker that very simply says, Jesus is the answer? I remember seeing a funny response to that one time at a park in Dallas. Someone had spray painted, Jesus is the answer. And the next day as I came by, someone had spray painted under it, what's the question? Well, what at first seems a rather trite and flippant statement really is, at the end of the day, the foundational answer for all of life. But when we state that Jesus is the answer, we are referring to our awful condition of sin and depravity before the face of a holy God. How can we, who are rebels, standing opposed to the kingdom of God, ever draw near to Him, in hope that he will accept us and welcome us into his holy presence. How can we know that the many religions of man throughout the history of the world are not the answer, but that faith in Jesus Christ alone is the sole answer to our corruption and rebellion against God? Well, the preacher is addressing this very question in his sermon to the Hebrew Christians. He is addressing former Jews who have now embraced Jesus as Messiah. And because of their faith in Jesus, they are now being persecuted by their former brothers and sisters of their faith because of their new faith in Jesus. But now, because the severity of the persecution and suffering that they are experiencing because of the gospel, some of them are ready to give up their faith in the Messiah 
and returned to Moses and the temple to keep peace. The real struggle here is between Moses and Jesus, the law and the gospel. So the preacher writes to these weakened and discouraged believers to hold firm to the true anchor of their souls and not to retreat to their former way of life. Why? Because they are not merely, they have not merely given a promise by God, but a sworn oath by God Himself that they will be fully accepted before Him through faith, resting in the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ, who has come to fulfill the order of Melchizedek. Look at chapter 6, just one chapter above, in verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's you, the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. That's just another way of saying a promise. He made a promise to you. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now this is key. The hope is what is being presented here that is unshakable. This hope that you might eventually draw near into the presence of God is anchored in a person. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the preacher grounds your hope in the unshakable promise of God that He has sent Jesus for you according to the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now notice that the preacher roots your hope in this strange order of Melchizedek. Why? Well, he begins by explaining in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, what this order of Melchizedek is and who he is. Let's look at chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, when you hear the word Salem, just think of the Hebrew word shalom, peace. You could also think of Jerusalem as the house of peace, the place of peace where God eventually sets his name. He is the king of, pre, the king of Salem, the priest of the Most High, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is, he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Notice how the author, the preacher, looks back in time to Melchizedek and says Melchizedek resembles something that is before him, namely the Son of God. See how great this man was to Abraham. The patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. So imagine Abraham, who is the father of Israel. He is the father of many nations. And in him, in the loins of Abraham, he gave a tenth, a tithe to Melchizedek. That's going to be very important in just a moment. He says, see how great this man was to Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly order have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent 
From them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say, notice what he says here, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So the point being that the order of Melchizedek is grounded in this fact that this man, this king priest from Salem, to whom Abraham and with him all of Israel, including the tribe of Levi, honored and paid a tribute from the choices of spoils of war. In this one act, the preacher explains that the order of Melchizedek is superior in every way to the Mosaic order of Levi. That's the key of what you have to get so far. That Melchizedek is superior to Aaron, to Levi. Notice again in verse 7 he says, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. That's the heart of what the preacher is saying. The greater order of Melchizedek and the Levitical priesthood is only a shadow, a type of the greater. The Levitical priesthood is the servant of the Melchizedekian priesthood, and it pays tribute to Melchizedek. Now, the Levitical order here refers to the law of Moses while Melchizedek refers to the promises of the gospel. Look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priesthood to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? If you want to get the heart of what the Hebrew sermon is all about, it is about the better covenant that we have in Jesus. Imagine you are the persecuted Hebrew Christians. You've come to faith in Jesus Christ. Imagine for a moment of becoming a Christian in a Jewish community, or maybe even better, in, a, in an Islamic community, and you've become a Christian, and now you're enduring severe persecution. You are being ostracized from your family. You're being ostracized from work. All the people that you know will not have anything to do with you. And in that community, you are trying to survive, to take care of your family, to provide for those who need you. And yet you cannot do so because of the severe persecution. And because of that, you remember back to when your life in Judaism was so much easier when you fell in with the crowd, those who you've grown up with. And so the temptation is to go back to that thinking, well, I had access to God through the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices. Why not leave this Jesus behind and go back to Moses? Go back to the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood. At least I could see my sins being forgiven by those blood-given sacrifices of bulls and goats. I can't see what Jesus has done for me. And that's the real temptation. To go back to Moses thinking Moses is still available to us in having access to God. So here we come to this contrast, this vital contrast between Moses and Christ to say to that audience that you cannot go back to Moses. Moses has completed his mission for God by bringing us Jesus. Now that Jesus is here, there's no going back to the types and the shadows, to the sonogram of the baby who has now been born. The baby is here, the sonogram of Moses must now, having completed its purpose, be put away so that we now have Christ and in Him we have access to God. So the preacher's point here is absolutely crucial 
in his argument that Jesus is superior and has fulfilled and completed the Mosaic system, and it has now become obsolete and has passed away. Turn to the next chapter, chapter 8, and look at verse 13. Verse 13 is summarizing for us this fact that the old covenant under Moses has passed away, and now the new covenant in Jesus Christ has appeared. He says in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete, i.e. the Mosaic covenant. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So here in the rising of the sun, the night billion stars are now fading away in the brilliance of the, new day, the, the noon day sun. Moses has completed his purpose. He has brought us to Jesus. And now that his work is complete, he must take a back seat to the glorious guarantor of a greater and more blessed covenant. Now we just read verse 11, where the preacher begins with a rhetorical question to show the weakness and imperfection of the law of Moses. Again in verse 11, he says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? If the Mosaic law which gave us the Levitical priesthood with all the sacrifices, with the temple, with all the atonements that were made, why would there ever be the need for another priesthood? If that priesthood could get us to God, if it could bring us into the presence of God, then why must there be another priesthood? Well, here, if the Mosaic system is presented before us, King David himself spoke of another priesthood, a priesthood according to Melchizedek. Remember Psalm 110. David spoke of this one distinct and far greater priesthood who would come after David's day. David looked forward to God's promise that he would send another priesthood who would come and bring true perfection to God's people that they may draw near to God forever. Well, beloved, that day has come. That day has arrived. We are living in a glorious day in redemptive history. We are no longer living in the shadows and the types that King David was looking at. We now have the substance that all those things pointed at, pointed to in Jesus Christ. That's why the preacher can say we have a better hope than even King David had. Now, it should not lead us to discouragement that Moses has completed his work. We are not somehow handicapped because we no longer have a temple. The temple has been torn down. The Levitical priesthood have been done away with. The sacrifices no longer stream blood for our sins. We have a perfect priest, a perfect sacrifice, that God always intended to send to us, but was only pictured for us through the Levitical system and the many bowlfuls of blood that system produced. The change is not by subtraction, but by multiplying the infinity of the blessings of God. This priesthood is the sun rising in the morning to cast the brilliant light of a billion stars in the heavens away. So there is a change in the priesthood. The baton has been passed, and with that change in the priesthood is a change in the law of Moses, which now gives way to the greater promise of Melchizedek. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, the preacher says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. The greater surpasses the lesser. And with the greater comes a change in the administration from Moses to Jesus. Now, in order to explain just what has happened, the preacher is going to look at two ways this change has taken place. He'll begin on the negative side. 
that Jesus is not like Aaron. Notice he says that through the law, God set the tribe of Levi to serve in the tabernacle and temple. By the law, only the sons of Aaron were able to officiate at the altar of God. But Jesus didn't come from the tribe of Levi. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. And in the history of Israel, no son of Judah ever officiated at the earthly altar in the presence of God. So how could Jesus be superior to Aaron? Because Jesus came to fulfill the greater priesthood of Melchizedek. And by fulfilling the superior, he necessarily completed the lesser at the same moment in redemptive history. Notice how he roots that truth in verse 13. He says, For the one of whom these things are spoken, Jesus, belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with the tribe of Moses said nothing about priests. Judah only spoke of a coming king, not a priesthood. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement of the law concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, David prayed, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By coming according to the order of Melchizedek, then, your hope is not based in something that is temporary and passing away. You remember, as far as the Jews were concerned in Israel, every year another day of atonement happened. Every year was another trip to Jerusalem to offer another sacrifice for another year's worth of sins. There was always a continual reminder from the Levitical system, that the law could not save us. The law could not do anything but remind us that we are forever sinners in the presence of God. Had God left that system in order, we too today would just be simply reminded every day through that Mosaic system that we are sinners in the presence of God. But something has changed. That Mosaic system was based upon a physical requirement that necessarily limited by the servants being sinful men. Those who served at the temple were both sinners and mere men who had to sacrifice for their own sins first and suffered from the same limitations that we all suffer from. But Jesus comes with eternal divine power. He himself is God in the flesh, and therefore he has an indestructible life. He comes in the power of God himself and is appointed directly from heaven's throne. While Jesus could never have served as a priest according to Moses, because he did not descend physically from Aaron, he came rather at the direct appointment of God to fulfill the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so he remains a priest forever because he is indestructible. His life never ends. Even the cross, the self-sacrifice itself, could not end his life, but rather he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven on high where he now sits forevermore as your high priest to bring you to God. In other words, your salvation is rooted and grounded in the indestructible life of Jesus. You can be assured of your salvation as you are of Jesus' permanent life. Because He will never die and He will live forever. So you who have put your faith in Jesus will equally live forever. Now... As the high priest in his resurrection ascension, he has proven that his life is indestructible and therefore superior to Moses. Look at verse 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside. Again, we're talking about the commandment of Moses. 
A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Why is it weak? Why is it useless? For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, it's vital that we understand what this better hope is. Well, first, he contrasts it with the uselessness of the Mosaic law. Why was it weak and useless? It wasn't because the law itself was weak. The law is the expression of God's holy character and served his purpose in giving it to Israel. If you want to know what the entire Old Testament is about, it's about this one thing. This one point is what the entire Old Testament is trying to prove. That the weakness and the uselessness of the law is found in those who could not fulfill it. The law did not bring about the necessary perfection that we are required to have before God, not because it was imperfect, but because you are imperfect. And that's the whole purpose of the law, to bring to us a clear understanding that by our own self-righteousness, we will never make it to God. We will never achieve this trip, this journey, to God's presence if we are relying upon ourselves. No matter how good we think we are, no matter how good we think we have behaved, we will never arrive at the perfection that God Himself sets before us as the goal that the law constantly pointed us to if we rely upon ourselves. So in order to draw near to God, God had to provide a way of meeting that righteous requirement, and He has done so perfectly in Jesus. The old has been replaced by a better hope based on an indestructible life who is capable of bringing you to God. And now in Him we have a better hope that Moses could have ever imagined. We now have a hope in Jesus Christ through whom we can daily and forevermore draw near in the presence of God. Look at verse 19 again. In verse 19 he says, we have a better hope that has been introduced through which we draw near to God. Now in verse 20 through 25, the preacher spells out two glorious benefits of this change in the priesthood. First, in verses 20 through 22, he reminds you that this new hope is based upon an unchangeable promise of God. Look at verse 20. He says, And it was not without an oath. That simply is a promise, a declaration by God Himself. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. The law didn't come by a promise. The law doesn't come with a promise that if you mess up the law that you'll be okay. The law comes with law. It reminds us only that we fall short. It can never fix that problem. And as we read on in the book of Hebrews, we find out that the system that was in place for the forgiveness of sins merely reminded us year after year after year that we are sinners and therefore incapable of drawing near to God. So what the law couldn't do, Christ has done for us. He says, but this one, this Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The old priesthood of Moses was not based upon a promise. In verses 20 and 21, as we just saw, and in verse 28, we learned that it was based upon law. It required you to meet a certain standard, and that standard was you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But the new priesthood is based upon a divine promise in which God will never change His mind. Now, what does that mean for you? God stakes His own existence, His own essence, 
that he will fulfill all that he has promised you, or he is not God. The promise is made to his own son, who has become for you the down payment, the guarantor of a better promise. A guarantor is even greater than a mediator. A mediator simply stands in between two parties. But the guarantor lays his life and possessions on the line for the one who owes the debt to assure both parties that the debt will be paid in full. You might look at it in a very crude and earthly manner. Imagine taking out a loan that is much too large to pay. In fact, it's infinitely costly that you could never possibly cover it. Yet your debt is simply so large that instead of you being able to repay it, which there's no hope, Jesus has come to your aid as the guarantor of the debt. He is the co-signer upon the contract who is now liable for your inability to repay it. And so all the weight of the debt has fallen on Him and all the pressure is off of you. Now, because Jesus, God's only beloved Son, has paid your debt in full, thereby completing the law of Moses and finishing anything that is left to do. In other words, all the requirement that God has of a perfect standard that you must be perfect to draw into the presence of a holy God, all the requirement has been met. In Jesus Christ... I have satisfied the righteous requirement of the law. So the debt has been paid. The law has been fulfilled. There is nothing left to do. And I have entered now into a better eternal covenant with better promises in the bedrock of a better hope. But secondly, the change in the priesthood brings you yet another incredible benefit. The old priesthood of Moses contained a continual supply of priests to serve in the temple, while we only have one priest who fulfills the order of Melchizedek. Now, we might think the multiplicity of priests is a good thing. Rather, it's not a sign of superiority, but inferiority, because we have to remind ourselves why they had to keep replacing the priests. It was necessary that so many priests serve the earthly temple because they had one problem. They kept dying. And so there needed to be a new, fresh set of priests coming in forevermore to be able to fulfill all the requirements that the law had of the temple. Look at verse 23. He says, The former priests were many in number. That may sound great at first. But then you hear, because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. But the superiority of our priest is that he is so different than the Aaronic priesthood. Jesus comes in the power of an indestructible life. You could nail him to a cross, and yet three days later he will come alive again. You cannot kill him. You cannot do away with him. You cannot remove him forever. He will always keep coming back. He has an indestructible life. And therefore, he holds his priesthood permanently. Look at verse 24. But he, Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And as long as he lives, your debt will be paid in full, and you will never owe God another thing. Now, As your priest, Jesus Christ continues to serve you by interceding on your behalf. He continually prays for you. Think about that. When you come to church and you ask for a brother or sister to be praying for you, you never can be sure that they are praying and continually praying. But you can always be certain that the very one who holds you in the palm of his hands, who will never let you go, is praying for you continually. Notice he says in the next verse, in verse 25 and 26, he says, for indeed, it, or so he says in verse 25, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost. 
There, there's no greater salvation than being saved to the uttermost. There's nothing greater than uttermost. He is, has the ability to save you completely. Why? Because those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What this means is that the very one to whom you owe an infinite debt will be completely, continually satisfied by the everlasting pleading of your defender. That every sin, all the sins you have committed and yet to commit, every act of rebellion, every disobedience has been forever atoned for and made right by the once-for-all sacrifice at Calvary. Basically, Jesus has paid it all. And when he declared on the cross, it is finished, the work was done. There is nothing more to add to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He perfectly completed all that was required of you before the very throne of God. Truly, Jesus is the answer to your sin. He is able to meet your every need of forgiveness that you may draw near to God with boldness, with assurance that you may daily and forevermore receive mercy and grace to help in your time of need. And that's really the heart of what this is all about. Our goal in life, everything that we're working for, everything that we marry our spouse and we labor to love them and to serve them. We raise our children. We want to raise them to love the Lord. We want to raise them to serve the Lord. Everything that we do in life is for one purpose. And that is one day we will see God. One day we will behold the face of God. The beatific vision of God. And what our very purpose in life, why we exist, what we're being trained for in this world, everything that is being done is for that one glorious moment to set our eyes upon God. Jesus here today assures you that is yours. Your hope is secure in Him. Your hope has been satisfied, and the bedrock of that is in His faithfulness. Because of what Jesus has done, you can be assured that one day when you take your last breath, when your heart beats its last, you will enter in and forevermore draw near to God. Now, what he is saying in the final section here is the second point that he is making about the incredible work of Jesus Christ. Not only does he have an indestructible life, he can never die. But notice in verses 26 and 27, he fits so perfectly to meet your need in the way that Moses could have never dreamed of. Moses longed to see this day of Jesus. Moses longed to see this preacher who is coming, this king, this priest. He longed for this day to arrive. And we remember there at the Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah are gone, God says, this is the one that you are to hear. Listen to him. Moses has passed away. The prophets have passed away. And out of it has come the one to whom Moses and the prophets pointed, namely Jesus Christ. So the high priest under Moses suffered from the same condition that all men suffer. Not only do they die, which is an actual proof of this one point, but they all suffer from the same problem that you and I suffer from. They too are sinners. And if they're going to make an atonement for your sin, they first have to take care of their own sin before they can take care of your sin. In verse 26, the preacher says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests of Moses, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Think of this glorious promise. 
the people of Israel were sort of put together and held together by a band-aid. Their priests kept dying. They keep having to get new priests to fulfill the ones who have passed away. Their priests are continuing to have to offer sacrifices for sin, but before they can be clean enough to offer the sacrifices for the people's sin, they have to first atone for their own sins. They have to pay the debt for them, then they can pay the debt for the people. And so they are daily offering up over Israel's history thousands, perhaps millions of gallons of blood to atone for sin for themselves and for the people. But unlike Moses' priest, this one priest, your high priest, he comes and offers himself, he's the priest and the sacrifice, for all time, once and for all time, never to offer another. Why? Because he is not like us in one very important way. He is perfect holy, innocent, undefiled. He became like you. He was truly a human being. He came in your flesh. He came in your skin. He took up your human nature, but He was not in any way corrupted like you are. There was no sin imputed to Him. He didn't have original sin. He never committed an actual sin. He was eternally and infinitely separate from sinners, and exalted above by God. Now you may wonder, how could someone who is perfect fully identify with sinners? I mean, after all, wouldn't it be better that the person who knows us most is a sinner like us? Wouldn't he have more compassion on us if he had to suffer from sin the way we suffer from sin? Wouldn't the priests of Moses better identify with the sinners themselves? Well, if you were drowning in deep waters, would you prefer to have someone who is next to you drowning the way you are, or would you want someone's assistance who is safely anchored in the ship above who comes to your aid? Jesus is the only one in the whole universe to come to your aid precisely because He is perfect, sinless, and holy. It is because He is without sin that He can offer the perfect sacrifice once and for all time. Pay your debt in full. Now verse 28 is the preacher's summary of this section of the sermon. Verse 28, he sums up everything that he has just talked about in chapter 6 and 7 with these words. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, the promise, the gospel, the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Isn't it Paul who says in Galatians 2.20, For I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Your life is now forever defined by the perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ. You look like to a holy God the way Jesus looks. You are righteous the way He is righteous. You are not only forgiven of all your sin, you are holy and righteous as He is because of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect Savior. In verse 28, the preacher summarizes his argument of the superiority of the gospel to the law. John's gospel, John the Beloved declares, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. What the law pointed you to has now arrived. The law only had the ability to point men who were in the same awful condition as the rest of us. Those high priests were equally dead in their trespasses and sin. They were as corrupt as you are. But the gospel comes very differently. 
It gives what God promises. The law comes to require from you what you could not possibly pay. And since you cannot pay it, it offers you and it pays you only death. But the gospel comes with the power of an indestructible and sinless life to give you life eternal freely. The gospel comes after law to heal you and to forever bring you into God's eternal presence. Jesus fully and completely delivers you to God. The law has driven you outside of yourself, outside of your self-righteousness, of any hope that you can do what is required of you. Through the law, you have no hope. But what does the gospel give you in exchange for the law? Jesus. He gives you Jesus. He is perfect in every way. And because of Him, you are equally declared perfect through faith alone, through resting in Him alone. You rest in His work for you, and because that work is finished, complete, perfect, you are forevermore able to draw near to God. And as the author of Hebrews says, that you may find mercy and grace in your time of need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our greatest desire as the deer panteth after the water brooks is you. There is nothing we desire more than to be with you. And we long for that day when that eternal hope is our reality. When faith turns to sight and we behold the very face of the living God. And we as sinners can have that hope assured, solid, because of Jesus Christ. It's not because we've obtained a holiness of our own. It's not because we have gone to church. It's not because we have done all the right things. If we were honest with ourselves, we very rarely have ever done the right things. But we have one who has. We have one who has finished it all. We have one who now claims us as his own, who through faith we now rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And because of him, the day of drawing near to God is on its way. Death will not separate us. Even our evil will not separate us from the work that Christ has completed. Let this now, as the author of Hebrews goes on to say, Spur us on for living a life for you now. Of living a life in which we testify to the glorious work of God for sinners slain. Let us now live in a manner that brings glory to your name. To exalt you in the time that we have left. To present Jesus as the one and perfect Savior of man. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, brother, for such encouragement. Let's stand and sing almost home. <laughs>